If you'd like to uh, open your Bibles to John 1.18, that is our text for today. We will be also in Act, or, uh, Exodus 33, walking through the passage of Exodus 33. Our text reads as follows today. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. It is monsters that dwell in the dark. We went on our camping trip a few weeks back, and I shared a few ghost stories around the campfire with the boys. I shared a couple of anecdotes from a friend of mine where after moving into a new house, he and his sister would hear the sounds of someone working in the kitchen in the middle of the night, and they would go down the stairs and turn around the corner, and they'd flip the lights on, and there'd be nobody in the kitchen. On another occasion, my friend told of, told of boots he heard stomping around his house in the middle of the night, um, and that when he called out, they pounded up the stairs, and he shut the door, and when he opened the door again, there was nothing there. I bring these up because the scariest things we imagine often aren't seen. We make our monsters invisible because when they're invisible, they can soar far beyond our natural comprehensions of what scares us. A spider scares you. A spider you cannot see scares you ten times more. Um, The understanding we have of ghosts is that they're invisible. Vampires don't have reflections. And demons, the only thing on that list that actually exists are spirits and are invisible to the naked eye. Invisible things terrify us. Now, I want to do an experiment with you guys. When I say a word, I want you to think of the image that corresponds to that word. Are you ready? Okay. Apple. Tree. Car. Bible. Grass. Sun. Ocean. Stars. God. What came to your mind when you thought of God? The only right answer should be nothing. Nothing came to mind. If it was an image, it was a wrong image. Because no one has seen God at any time. There's not one single person, prophet, angel, demon, or even archangel that can say they've seen God. Those angels that came down to the shepherds and said, fear not, they're the ones who go to God and God has to tell them, fear not. They cover their eyes in worship of him. That which we cannot comprehend cannot comprehend God. That should jar you. Because we worship a God that we cannot understand. That should terrify us. He can do anything he wants. The floor underneath you that is as solid as rocks right now, God could turn it into paper and we all fall forever in an instant. He could do that. That could be his will. And yet he doesn't. It's somewhat easy to think of no one seeing abstract concepts as 
logic or love or mercy because they're concepts. It's difficult to think that no one has ever seen a person and yet he exists. And he exists as the most important person. We're so used to having images correspond to our realities, most things that exist you can see. The fact that no one has seen God makes him supremely unique. What is the name of God's extreme, supreme, and complete uniqueness? Holiness. God is invisible because he is holy, holy, holy. What image could capture a divinely infinite God? It, was like, it would be like if you took every conceivable image of the most dynamic uh, images of power, volcanoes erupting, supernovas exploding, dynamite destroying buildings and collapsing down, and then combining that with the most gentle moments that you could ever imagine, uh, a baby being born and being held in the arms of a mother, uh, the consolation of, of a child from a teacher, and you put these in images and you layer them all on top of one another and it turns out into a cohesive image, it never would happen. No image could ever fully grasp God. He is much, much too large for that. And if we take, or 1 Timothy 6.16 heightens this idea of God's invisibility, it not only says no one has ever seen God, it says no one ever will. No one ever will. They can't. No one can see God. And if we take a brief detour into the Old Testament to understand this passage in John 1.18, let's turn to Exodus 33, verse 11, and then 18-23. Exodus 33, 11, and then 18 through 23. I have a good friend who told me that my finger always needs to be in the place I'm in the Bible, so that's where I'm going. So verse 11 says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So Moses used to speak to God uh, face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. And then in verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. The Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. If you can recall a month ago, I spoke on the supremacy of Christ above Moses and the excellency of the gospel above the law. It seems John is doubling down on the comparison in bringing up God's invisibility in verse 11, or, or in verse 18. In verse 11 of chapter 33, it says, Moses spoke to God as a friend, as one who speaks to a friend face to face. Still, Moses knew he was missing out on something. Because if he thought that he was fully seeing God, he would not have asked to see his glory. 
he knew that there was a lack. Um, Moses did not speak to him in the same way that our Christ has spoke to his father. It was as though Moses spoke to him face to face. And yet when we turn to John 1.1, the phrase in John 1.1, which is for us, and the word was with God, is anarche logos prosteon. Logos prosteon is God across from God. Logos across from God. Jesus Christ across from God. Jesus is face to face with God from before the world was. Yes, Moses could speak to God as a friend because God considered him a friend and made him a friend. But Jesus is the one who spoke to God in actuality, face to face, before the world ever was, and could bear it because he himself is God. Brothers and sisters, I know I've made this point before, and I pray you forgive me, but I think it is vitally important that when you encounter God, you genuinely encounter God, You wholly, totally come in contact with this divine being who is more terrifying than the most terrifying monster than you can imagine. There's nothing that you can do to ignore him. You cannot defy him. You cannot disregard him. When you encounter God, he will drive you to your knees and you will either worship him or you will be, or you will die and be sent to hell forever. No one can see God and live. We're dealing with ultimates here. We're speaking words that are ultimate. There are no higher words than the words that you are hearing this day on this Lord's Day. You have come to the fulcrum of all of creation's purpose. This is the gospel. I want you to fear God in the same way the disciples did when Jesus calmed the winds and waves of the sea. And the scripture reads, They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. All of the monsters that we make up are used to scare ourselves, that we use to scare ourselves are borrowing from God. They're not coming up with something new. Those things that terrify you come from a source. And just as the source of all goodness is God, the source of all justice is the Lord. When you stand by yourself in your house in the middle of the night in the night and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and your imagination runs wild, think not of ghosts, fear God. When you hike and you hear branches break off in the distance, fear neither the lion nor the bear who can destroy your body, but fear God who gives animals their fearsome glory and leads them about as though on a leash. When receiving an ominous email from an employer or a client and you have no vision of what the future holds, fear not what that man or woman has the authority to end your career. Rather, fear God, for it is this invisible God who has put their authority over your life. There are no ghosts or spirits that can haunt you in the way the Holy Ghost will haunt you if he has called you his own. If the Holy Ghost is ordained to make you his own, he will fill your life with all manner of metaphorical monsters. He will dog you with the beast of your own conscience. He will afflict you with the vampire of your own heart. He will cause the skinwalker of your soul to eat you. And you will have no recourse and no refreshment until you run to him for solace and protection. The gravest and most vile monster you can imagine to terrify you has nothing to this God who has no image who is absolutely unique, whom you cannot kill, and you will never see. Fear God, 
but love him. Fear God, but love him. Because if you only fear him, he is not your father. He is not your savior. He is not your prophet. He is not your priest. He is not your king. He is your judge. You must love him as well as fear him. And it is so true, after thinking about this invisible God, that we have the Son, who is the only begotten of the Father, to come and make him known. And we, in an instant, we go from this terrifying God who we cannot see, to see the heart of God, to be loved towards a Son to save a people. We go from this God who is all judgment and terrifying that opens up the ground to swallow the rebellion of Korah who says that if anyone touches the mountain when Moses is on it with the law they shall die who comes down and afflicts the Egyptians with plagues this God has come down in the person of Jesus Christ and he has made his heart known to us and his heart is that he should die for you and that he loves you You see, the reason why our God has to be the most terrifying being is because he has to be stronger than those monsters in the dark. He is worse than they are, so he can beat them. Worse in the sense that he is more strong and powerful. If you study non-Christian religions, you'll find this consistent theme, and you all know this, work really hard to attain nirvana, Brahma, union with the universe, yada, 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 it all. We all know that it doesn't make sense. Christianity is the only religion where the God who should terrify you comes down in a person that you can understand. That the unknown comes to the known rather than the known comes to the unknown. Christianity flips the idea of salvation on its head compared to every other religion because it's the only one that's true. Jesus Christ departed from perfect happiness in order to declare his Father to us. You see this phrase where it says that he is the only son who is in the bosom of the father. The only begotten son. The phrase there in the Greek is monogenes theos. Monogenes is this idea of unique position in relation to the one who begot it. It also means generation. But we know that the whole first chapter of John is teaching that Jesus Christ is eternal. And the phrase is monogenes theos. Not monogamous son. I don't know the Greek word for son because I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm just reporting on what they say. Monogamous theos is only begotten God. So you're going to hear the cults tell you Jesus can't be begotten because begotten implies that he was born. Um, Was God born? And then we come into the Mormon heresy of yes, God was born. But no, God was not born. Because we know that the word says that after me there shall be no other and before me there has been none other. So God has been forever always. And this Jesus, who is God, is begotten. And this text right here in 118 says that God was begotten. And this is the equivalent of God the Father loving a son who is the most cherished son in all of existence. That there is no one whom the Father loves more than Jesus Christ. We, can't, we really can't know how low Christ came unless we know how truly high and glorified he was before his incarnation. If you have children, as many of us do, um, you have a, somewhat of a sense of this kind of love that the Father has for the Son. What parent is there that doesn't want the absolute best? For their child. 
What parent is there when they're in their right mind and hold their child for the first time and think to themselves, I'm utterly indifferent to this human being. It's just another part of my life. <laughs> no, it's, it is life-changing. It's a, it's a canon event in your history. When we go through the annals of history in, in eternity, we're going to point to those times when your children were born and you're going to go, those were the most significant events of my life. And this son whom the father loves is the most significant person to the father who loves infinitely and perfectly forever. And he has placed all of his love on the son. And when you believe upon the son, you are in the son. You are unified with him. And therefore, all of his love is set upon you. And then think about this. After a birth, what do you see the parents of a child doing? Are they... they bring a folding table, put a board game on it, and leave the child in the crib. No! They're doing nothing except cooing at the child and thinking about it and loving it and enjoying it and adoring it because of how special it is. Those precious moments in the hospital room don't stay there. It's not that those are the only moments. I know of a couple when they had, well, Dusty and Caitlin, when they had their first child, they were so in love with their baby and they were so concerned for it, they kept checking on it in the middle of the night, they couldn't sleep. They kept looking after it because they were so concerned for its well-being that they just couldn't get it out of their minds. Yeah, that's William right there, this little boy. And, and that small picture of their so wonderful love for their child is nothing in comparison to the attention and the love that the father has for the son. And there are no other children in God's kingdom more suited to be loved by God the Father. All of God's Christians, all of his adopted children were loved in spite of themselves. Jesus Christ was the only son who earned the pleasure of the Father. I mean, we all spend every single day of our lives trying to do that and failing at it miserably. And Jesus did it. He did it. He earned it. The Father looked at him not as one who he had to give grace, but as one who was rightfully deserving of this love from the Father. Jesus Christ was of such of a high value, even before he was incarnated and resurrected and ascended, he was in the heart of the Father. He didn't earn that position. He demonstrated that position with his life. There was nothing that the Son could have asked from God the Father that he would not give him. If you want to think of the best relationship you've ever had, I want you to think of the best moment of the best relationship that you have. If you're married, perhaps it was a special day with your spouse where at the end of the day you're you're thinking to yourself, wow, I really couldn't think of a more wonderful day. This is is great. Or if you're a parent and, and your child's accomplished something amazing that they've been working at and they're standing there and they're beaming, you think, I truly couldn't be more proud as your child stands there in their brilliance. The greatest relational moment you've ever experienced pales in comparison to the purity and the glory that the relationship between the Father and the Son manifests. Which means that for our relationships, it is the height of our aim. That as the Son loved the Father and served Him and gave Himself up for Him, that's what we do in service to the Father. And then to our neighbor, we look to Him as Son... Whether we're children, we see how he served his parents. Whether he's a, a workman, we see how he served his employers. Whether, or not he, whether he's a father because he was a spiritual father to many, Jesus Christ demonstrates perfectly for us. And as we're going through the Gospel of John, we're going to see how these things apply to us. 
that Jesus Christ gives us the perfect example and gives us provision to serve him in these ways. And the Son and the Father were in perfect unity before the world ever was. This is the only begotten Son in the fa- of the Father. That means there was never any time the Son spoke with the Father that he ever had to be worried of any decep- deception or temptation, and yet Christ still came down. There was never a time when they were relating with one another where it was subject to any form of problem. I mean, in the best relationships in life, it's always subject to some form of corruption. There was not one human that Jesus spoke to that didn't have some deception in his communication with him. Your highest prayer that you ever lift up to God the Father is worth nil unless Jesus Christ puts his grace all over it. When Christ came down, Satan made it his number one priority to afflict and tempt him. Prior to Jesus becoming a man, he had never known temptation or trial. Before Christ became a man, there was no possibility whatsoever for the relationship of father and son to devolve into anything wicked or wrong. The everlasting bliss between God and the Father and God the Son was never uh, broken, nor could be subject to corruption. Just, I, I want to make that point because it's different. It, it emphasizes his holiness. It emphasizes his differentness because, again, all of our relationships can be broken. His cannot because of the love that he has between, because of the love that God has between the Godhead. Brothers and sisters, you know that your relationships are subject to corruption. As many of you sit here, uh, you have broken relationships with your children. Um, the relationships that you ought, that ought to have the strongest foundation for us because of kinship are broken. Many of you have broken relationships. Parents can be domineering or they can be enabling. Children can be spoiled or overly timorous. Um, and children, uh, your parents will fail you. They will sin against you time and time and time and time again because they are not God. However, whether you are a parent with a broken relationship uh, with a child or a brother or a sister, or you are a, uh, a child that struggles with obeying their parents, um, God knows your pain. More than you will ever be able to conceive, God knows your pain. Because he had this perfect relationship with his father before the, er- before the world ever was, And Christ came down, and uh, what did Jesus Christ say on the cross? My Father, my Father, why hast thou forsaken me? The relationship between God the Son and God the Father relationally for a time was broken. And he knew the pain of what it means for a parent to lose a child, or a parent to have a brother or a sister deceived, or uh, the pain of a child to have abusive parents. Not that the father abused the son, by no means, but that the relationship was broken. And so God knows what it's like to have a broken relationship. But he restores relationships. The God who cannot die rose again. The God who had a broken relationship with his father for a purpose was reconciled. Not because of anything that that the son had ever did, but it was broken on our behalf that we might be brought in. This is why Jesus Christ is the perfect person to declare the father 
to the world. From before the foundation of the world, God the Father made a pact with the Son to save a specific people group. This is what we call the covenant of redemption. God the Father gave God the Son a work to do, words to speak, and by those words and works, demonstrate what it looks to be perfectly loved by the Father. For in the words, in the bosom of the Father, are in the present tense which means that even though Christ was no longer experiencing the perfect and unmitigated bliss and felicity of the relationship prior to the incarnation, the Father never plucked Christ out of his bosom, even when he was forsaken. And he demonstrates to us at all times who this God is. John the Evangelist, I think, makes this point in particular in his gospel because he himself is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he lay on the bosom of the sun as they reclined at the table. Jesus is the heart of God. The heart of God has been opened up to us in the person of Christ. And this is why, this is why we must tarry long in Christ's word. We must sit under it every day. Because I'll tell you, I have had many phases of my life where I, th- I thought I found the next best thing. I really liked metal music. In middle school and high school, it's all I wanted to talk about. And then I really, really liked anime, and it's all I really wanted to talk about. And then I really, really liked going to the gym, and it's all I wanted to talk about. And you know what? Those were phases. And they came, and they went. But there is one thing that has stuck with me ever since I came in contact with him, and that is Jesus Christ. He is not a phase. His truth affects so deeply that those things that I thought were my end-all and be-all in the moment are wisps in the wind that I hardly miss. But if Jesus Christ were to turn his face away from me for a moment, I could do nothing except plea for him to look back. And it is, again, important to understand God's invisibility here because it's what heightens the importance of this relationship. How can a visible being who is immoral and defied defied the principles of God, have this relationship with God. Jesus. Period. (laughs) It's more than that because Jesus is, you you unpack Jesus and all the riches of heaven are in him, so we're never going to stop thinking about him because he has an application to every part of your life. Every single part of your life. Jesus is the heart of God. He reveals perfectly the will of God and demonstrates the manifold glory of God, and yet he lives, he looked to the face of God and live. Children, if you want to honor your parents, as the law commands, look to Christ, who gives provision in his gospel to help you obey your parents. Think of how proud he made his father, that the only times we hear the voice of the father in the gospel, he gives us this command. Listen to him. That's what, Jesus, that's what God says about Jesus. Listen to him. And Mary... Jesus' mother is in full agreement. For in the wedding of Cana, all she says to the servant is, do whatever he tells you. Okay, so the parents of Jesus are, listen to him, do whatever he tells you. Little brothers and sisters, if you're listening, if you hear it, if the Spirit works in you, uh, if your parents are godly parents, it should be one of your goals in life to get them to defer to you in judgment because of your ownership of the truth. That means know the truth. Know it more than your parents. Know it more than Chris or Dusty or Randy or Dave or Andy or me. Know it more than your mothers, more than Caitlin or Amy or Jen. Know the truth 
more than your parents. Because Jesus didn't come down and have his parents explain everything. He explained it himself. Know the truth. And I know many of you children love to draw. We've been doing that um, a lot more lately and play video games and love music. Uh, Listen to this phrase by John Flavel. Great men have great delights. Great men have great delights. Um, He writes that on this passage, speaking of God the Father's delight and God the Son. Um, There are times when a human poem can catch the eye of a reader for days on end. Sometimes a painting can catch the eye of an admirer and cause them to transfix their gaze at it for months. They, they love it so much they're willing to spend millions of dollars on certain paintings and they have historical value. Um, video games take up hours and hours and hours and hours of our life because they transfix. Um, in our modern and fast-paced and busy lives, we don't take the right amount of time to think upon Jesus the way that we put our time and effort towards those things that twinkle before our eyes. Drawing is amazing. Use it to the glory of God. Video games are awesome. Use it to the glory of God. Music is amazing. It is created for God's glory. We have to tarry long at Jesus' throne. Do you think that the furnaces of Nebuchadnezzar, which burn up the men standing near it, were brought to their temperature immediately? Uh, We learned while we were camping what it build a fire, um, how, to, how it works, and how to keep it alive, um, and how it gets really hot, uh, you blow on it, and it gets really, really hot that way. Um, our souls ought to be so aflame with the glory of Christ that those who come near us cannot but feel the heat of God's Spirit pouring out of us. Just as those men who were standing near Nebuchadnezzar's furnace were burned up, those who come near us should not be able to get near us without knowing that God's Spirit is within us. Because God's Spirit is gentle, but He is mighty, and He is invisible, and He is more terrifying than you can imagine. The word here declared in John 1.18 is the word exegeomai. It's a, the Greek word which translates to exegete, which is what we do for interpreting passages. Jesus exegetes the Father. Um, there are only other two references in the New Testament, uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus and Cornelius when he receives the angel of a vision where this word is used. And it's in reference to um, explaining a narrative or explaining a story. Um, And often it has a connotation of leadership through a narrative. So you're giving people the right points about um, a story or a narrative when you're exegeting something. Jesus Christ gives you all the right points in knowing God perfectly. That if you go to Jesus Christ, He is not going to lead you astray. There is a reason why God put four Gospels in the Bible and didn't put four other books of anything else because He wants you to know that if you want to know God, Jesus Christ is the way to know Him. Read about Him four times and then read about Him four times, four times, four to the nth degree is because you will find in Him all the things that you want to know about God. And since... We have a scripture verse in Revelation 5, 6-14. through 14. 
that explains this to us perfectly. And then I'll end with that. So Revelation 5, 6 through 14. And, bef and between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him, was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying, with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and every uh, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. John's constant theme in this opening chapter has been, if you want to know God, know Jesus Christ. He is the only one who is worthy to open up the seal and reveal to you the will of God. You will not find it anywhere else. Go and read of his teachings, how he came to seek and save that which was lost. Go and hear his declaration that the kingdom of God is at hand and delight that he never lied so that you may know that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here in the midst of you, go and read of his power over nature and his power over demons and his power over authorities and rulers. Go and read of his blood sweat struggle in the garden of Gethsemane and of his patience towards his followers whom he knew who would betray him from the beginning go and read of his unjust trial his flogging his thorns in his brows the spit upon his face go and run to calvary with me my brothers and sisters that we may peer for a moment through the eyes of the author john and see the tip of the spear pierce the side of the savior as blood and water mingled together and sprinkled the nations for the purification of many Go to the empty tomb and rejoice. Jesus Christ is risen. Don't look down, look up. Don't look down, look up. Christ is here and His face is shining upon you. The true light has come. Don't look down, look up. He is in the heavens and He is interceding on your behalf. This moment, right now, He has dispensed grace to you. Don't look down, look up. And This preacher will forever be a witness to no one and nothing other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For that is what He came to reveal to us about the Father. The love of the, of the Father to the Son is demonstrated in the sacrifice that He made on the cross for you and I so that we might have newness of life. Who am I to bring you anything else other than the apple of God's eye? He is the perfect interpreter of God. Know Jesus Christ and you will know God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that you would uh, allow us to see you 
in this text, in John, in a way that we had not seen you before. Not that there might be any new content to our thought, if we have the truth, Lord, but that we might honor you to a greater degree. We might worship you with more fervency and zeal. That we might have those areas of our life which we have not submitted to you yet submit to you because we have seen you and we have known you in Christ. That the God who is invisible, who is more terrifying than any monster and shakes the seas and the foundation of the earth has come down in a person and he demonstrated that he loves us and he died for us. Please let that be our theme in this church forever and ever. And bless this congregation, Lord. Bless us according to your will, according to your grace, according to your mercy. We just ask to see you, Jesus. In your name we pray, God. Amen.